Hello, everybody. Welcome to Spirit Matters at spiritmatterstalk.com and the YouTube channel of the same name. I'm once again flying solo as my usual co-host, Dennis Ramundi, could not be here. But we have a very interesting guest today, Paul Mills, returning for an encore on Spirit Matters. Uh, Paul is a professor of public health and family medicine and the director of the Center of Excellence for Research and Training in Integrative Health. He's a clinical researcher. His former positions are very impressive and too numerous to mention. He was among them director of research at the Chopra Center for Wellbeing. He's very well published in over 400 scientific publications. He's presented at hundreds of conferences and workshops around the world. And he is the author of an intriguing new book, this one, Science, Being, and Becoming, The Spiritual Lives of Scientists. And if you think that subtitle is an oxymoron, uh, <laughs> listen to what Paul has to say. Welcome, Paul. Thank you, Phil, for having me back. It's, it's good to be here. Uh, we usually begin with first-time uh, guests with uh, the background of their own spiritual search and their own spiritual discoveries and journey. Uh, we will refer people to uh, your first interview with us uh, if they want to get a fuller picture of that. But I do know that your background is relevant to the question I'm going to begin with, which is why this book? Why take the time and effort to interview scientists about their spiritual experiences? What gave rise to that? Yeah, a couple of things. And a big impetus was that over my years at UC San Diego, I somehow got this reputation for being kind of spiritual. And I would have students knock on my door now and again, uh, students who had started meditation or yoga practices, and they were trying to figure out how to integrate this sense of spirituality that was waking up in them with this academic mindset. And this is particularly those who are in the sciences, which is very materialistic. Most sciences are, I'd say, atheists or certainly agnostic. And they were having trouble just figuring out how to do it. And, and I would tell them, you know, there are a lot of scientists who are balancing this quite well, who have an active spiritual, metaphysical, mystical life, but are also deep in the sciences, doing their best uh, with research and, and really to try to overcome that gap between science and spirituality. So it was the inspiration, well, maybe I can put a book together and I could interview a bunch of scientists doing this work. And this will be a resource, certainly for these young students, but for, for anybody, really. Because besides the interviews, as you know, Phil, the book has information just on the general consciousness development journey that we're all on. And I hope that part of the book's useful also. Obviously, what you found in your interviews, you found intriguing enough to warrant the effort of putting it together in a book. Mm -hmm. What 
in uh, general terms, did you discover? I discovered at least among those scientists I interviewed, and it was primarily biomedical scientists, but also medical anthropology and um, a couple of physicists. That yeah, many scientists have a very active spiritual life, and the first question I asked them in the interviews would they share with me whatever type of spiritual realization or opening they had that one one in their life did it occur were they young were they older how did it influence their science or if, if they were young what i found is many of them became scientists because they because they had such deep spiritual experiences and i thought well science is the path to knowing i'm going to use science to try to figure out really what the world's about and what my own potential is about so one of the takeaways to the book is yeah Scientists aren't like the rest of us, are like the rest of us in terms of having pursued a spiritual life and develop it. Most are in the closet, so to speak, or at least have been prior to this book for reasons we can we can speak about. Um, how many people did you interview? 30. Is Now I'm going to put on a scientist hat. Is it uh, legitimate? to generalize from that sample? And is there what you might call selection bias? Yeah, there was some selection bias. I knew a fair amount of these folks already, but the truth be told, I didn't know if they had a spiritual life. It was just a feeling that I'm gonna reach out to them. Now there were scientists I reached out to and asked to participate in the interview for the book who said, you know, Paul, I'm a good fit. I've had so-called spiritual experiences. I'm on a path, but there's no way I'm going to talk about it. Because, because of the uh, ramifications potentially on their scientific career, particularly those who are in an academic setting. So they without said- Without no. tenure. <laughs> Indeed, without tenure. And the flip side is many who- said yes to me were folks who already had tenure and felt a bit more secure, or they were clinicians who didn't have to rely on grant money uh, at their institution. They were clinicians and they were needed within the medical system. And um, why that fear? What, uh, what is it a well-grounded fear? Would it uh, being uh, outed, so to speak, in a book like this, would that really have ramifications with with people sources of funding and uh who knows journal editors heads of departments would would they uh look askance at somebody describing spiritual experience historically that has happened i've read about that where people disclose things and later things in their career got a little mm, unpleasant let's say and one of the reasons i think is that for a scientist, uh, reputation is really, really important. Reputation that you're an outstanding scientist, you adhere to all the methodologies, gold standard methodologies in your research, whatever it is, whether it's clinical or basic, applied, and that when you have established that reputation, that goes such a long way for getting grants, for having your papers published in good journals. And, and it, all it takes is a little bit of a whisper here and there that can circulate around, particularly, say, the study section, which reviews grants. Well, Mills, he's starting to research mediumship now. We're not quite sure what's going on. Maybe he'll complete this project. Maybe he won't. 
this more traditional project. These things have happened and you get a reputation of being more of like a woo-woo scientist, that kind of thing. Now, many people who pursued a spiritual career decided not to go in the mainstream academia and went into more alternative institutions. California Institute for Integral Studies, for example, in the Bay Area. Uh, California Institute for Human Sciences in Encinitas, San Diego area. And it's more comfortable there because that's the premise of the whole institution. And you can you can fly the way you want to with your research as long as you can get funding to do this kind of work, which is also typically a challenge. Yeah, I would think so. So that persists despite um, all the research on uh, contemplative and meditative practices that have been going on for uh, at least 50 years and that you were uh, an integral part of. Uh, my guess is uh, it's not as bad as it used to be in that regard because of partly because of that research, it legitimizes. I mean, there, if somebody's evidence-based, the data is hard to uh, ignore, um, yeah. but you're saying that it, it persists. And uh, how do you explain that? How do you explain, let's go back. How, <laughs> what is the basis of what has always been assumed to be an incompatibility a split between science on the one hand, spirituality on the other. Okay, so I love to answer that. And I'll, I'll add before I do that, yes, it's a bit better than it used to be, but it does persist. It's better, at least if people are studying meditation and you can document all kinds of physiological effects and you have hard data. When you get into people saying, well, I transcended while I was meditating and I had this vast metaphysical experience or a mystical experience, that, that then is another territory that, that can get you in trouble. And this is part of the reason for the book, to show that we, we have to put away this false divide because there's so much that science could be teaching us and discovering further about our deep transcendent nature. Could you imagine if we had the resources, hundreds of millions of dollars pouring into this kind of work? It would be beautiful. And it would help people begin to accept in themselves, well, science is looking at this now. There must be something to it. Because typically there's denial. I write about that in the book. There were some folks I interviewed, they were they would display psychic abilities when they were a kid and they would show it to their parents and their parents, despite the evidence that the kid just read their mind, for example, they'd say, well, you know what, Sonny, that's impossible. Science said is impossible and therefore you can't be doing this. This kind of craziness goes on and on. And, and I'm hoping, uh, you know, it's, it stops. And I, I think we're in the right direction, but there's more to go. As far as the origin, well, it's generally understood, and I write about this in the book, that it started with that split with the Roman Catholic Church back in the day and Galileo and all the young scientists are starting to make discoveries that were contrary to the church's teaching. They were called in, a couple were burned at the stake, some, you know, put in prison, you know, they had to decant and all that. We can't. Uh, but essentially, that's where it started. And the church said, look, we're going to take this spiritual, and you can study the material world, have at it. We won't bother you again. Just, just stay out of this area. And that's really how it started. And what's interesting is that over the decades of this, centuries really, not only was it an area that scientists couldn't study, but then it really became an area that, you know what, this, it doesn't even exist. Mm -hmm. And so many scientists, that's the attitude. 
this doesn't even exist. Don't even bother wasting your time. And if you're starting to look at it, that's a problem about you as a scientist, which we were we were just hinting at a few minutes ago. And it's sort of like, how can you take this seriously? What's wrong with you? You're not one of us. Exactly. Yeah. Well said. Um, given that, um, what you just described is an understandable split between religion and science. Uh, and we, we know that history. And to this day, it's, you know, not just scientists, but people who pride themselves on their evidence-based thinking and rationality will dismiss conventional religion because mm -hmm. they question Darwin. They think the world is 7,000 years old or, or whatever. And, and there's an anti-science element in conventional religion. Mm -hmm. And so it's countered by an anti-religious uh, sentiment in science, understandably. But you're talking about spiritual experience and um, a, a sense of you know the, that there's something more than the material world that is how we typically define spirituality. So that's different from being uh, opposed to religious religious dogma. Mm -hmm. um, so how do you explain that piece of it? I mean, there's evidence, you know, that people have spiritual experience. So, yeah, it's it's an odd phenomenon, but in many ways they've been conflated together historically. But that started changing. Maybe you and I could muse about it. Was it 20 years ago? You started hearing people say, "Well, you know, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious." Right. What does that mean? I mean, back in the 50s and 60s, I don't think that would made much sense to people because it was all one thing. You went to church, temple, mosque, wherever you were doing your thing. And it was all one package. Unless you were a hippie weirdo. <laughs> yeah, then the freedom began. <laughs> but but once it started opening up, then people realized, you know what? I, I don't need all that dogma per se. I, I, can, I can do this on my own. I have it all within me. And that has started a lot of beautiful journeys. And yet... Um there's still uh, cynicism or skepticism within the scientific community. Is it that um, they question people's subjective experiences as they describe spiritual, their spiritual experiences, or do they question the conclusion that people come to uh, after they have a spiritual experience? Yeah. Great question. I think I think it's the former mainly, but maybe there's some pieces of the latter. And for the former, that's why in the book, in addition to everything I contributed, and, and I think you showed the cover, Deepak Chopra wrote the foreword, Ken Wilber wrote a special commentary. Plus in the book, I have four what are called spotlights. And one of the spotlights is written by Professor Morkides. He's uh, at the University of Maine. And he spent his career studying mystical experiences across religions and cultures. And I asked him to write the spotlight for the very reason you're asking. Can you put these experiences in a kind of perspective to try to provide a little more validity to them for the human experience, again, across cultures? And he did. I think he did a beautiful job. And that's to try to address this thing. Well, you know what? Don't just have a knee-jerk reaction that these things are crazy and they don't exist. 
if you look at polls across at least the United States, many people profess to have these experiences and those who don't believe they're real. But then you have science, a very small percentage of science saying, no, don't even bother pursuing it. So there's a huge disconnect and, and we have science to serve us, to provide research uh, for our needs and interests. And I'm just advocating, let's loosen it up a bit more. Set, set science free and set scientists free to do this work. In your interviews, did anything come up that surprised you? Mm. One of the main things was, again, these were scientists that I knew who I, I never had these kinds of discussions before. And when they agreed to do it, and I'm interviewing them, and the things they were disclosing to me, it all surprised me. It was beautiful. It was so intimate to have somebody sit down and say, Paul, when I was young, this happened. When I was older, this happened. I met God. I met a goddess. I became one with the universe. On and on. The book's full of these experiences. And they were willing to share with me and allow me to publish it in the book. So that was a primary surprise. Um, another part that maybe was a surprise is that as the interviews were going on, I began to see a pattern in people's lives, and, and therefore I organized the book according to the so-called monomyth or Joseph Campbell's um, hero's journey. And that fit beautifully because all of our lives naturally do fit these. And to organize the book that way just made a lot of sense, and I think it makes it more readable too. Uh, explain that, Paul. Explain oh, yes. for people who don't know the model yeah. of the hero's journey. Uh, Joseph Campbell, I, I kind of a mythologist, anthropologist back in the 50s, 60s. He wrote a book, The Hero with a Thousand Faces. And he wrote that book based on his journey across uh, the world, different cultures. And he began to see a pattern. And he, the pattern was, gosh, all these different cultures that I'm studying, which evolved independently of each other, all have the same mythology. And the one in particular, he called The Hero's Journey. And it's a mythology based on these very set major stages that occur in our lives. And the first one is called um, the call, heeding the call. And what it means is here's a person living their life, however long they've been living it, they're, they're in a routine of thinking and feeling and beliefs. And suddenly something happens. And let's say that something is a spiritual awakening given the context of our discussion. They have a spiritual awakening Maybe they transcend themselves and they're experiencing a oneness with the universe. That's the call in the hero's journey. And then the question is, what are they going to do with it? They say, well, that was crazy. I'm going to go back to my life as it was. Or do they say, I, I have to pursue this. And then they take the next step and they start pursuing it no matter what. The next step is typically the person on the journey meets a mentor. And the mentor helps teach them, explain to them what's going on. They take some more steps. The next step is often uh, meeting an adversary. Maybe it's somebody in their family. They're saying, oh, you're starting to meditate. You're going to an ashram. You're crazy. You come back home, get a job. That's kind of the adversarial things you've got to overcome. Somebody continues on the journey longer. Then they begin to discover their gifts. In this case, say their spiritual gifts, which typically involve a kind of uh, death, uh, metaphorical death, and a rebirth. They become someone new. And then the last stage of the journey is um, 
it's called the return where the person returns to their culture and they have knowledge now. They're saying basically, you know what? Things are different than I thought they were and here's how they are or they're sharing their gifts and that's the hero's journey. It's a beautiful story and, and that's how the book's organized. And you found that uh, in your interviews, they were sort of parallel, the, the personal stories parallel the hero's journey. Very um, much so. Did you discover in their descriptions uh, a variety of types of spiritual experience? And you know, those of us who have looked into mysticism and and you know the nature of spiritual experience, there's there are well-known categories of types uh -huh. of experience in that under that rubric. Did you find that? Yeah, I could list through the ones that come to my mind right now and I mentioned one earlier, uh, some children who were very psychic and could read people's thoughts, ESP, those sort of things. There were three people I interviewed who had all the clairs, clairvoyance, clairaudience, clairsentience. And they were trying to figure out what is all this information I'm seeing in these beings I'm communicating with? What does it have to do with my day-to-day -day loving? And what am I going to do with it all? There were people who, like me, had their first say, spiritual awakenings in the context of sitting down and having a meditation practice. Some took psychedelics when they were older, and that had the opening. Some had a spiritual opening from the stress of uh, mental illness oh. or being in a household that was highly stressful. The parents were maybe psychotic, uh, depressed, so forth. That was so hard on them, it just caused part of their psyche to split, and then they had an opening. And... Um, those are the major categories. I, I, I might be missing one, but that that's... Uh... So some were spontaneous, unexpected, mm -hmm. unanticipated, unsought. Yep. And others came as a result of some kind of spiritual practice, mm -hmm. which leads to the question, why did these people even have a spiritual practice? <laughs> you know, yeah, scientists do. Is, Yes. Yeah. Now, some of them had their spiritual practices when they were younger, before they became a scientist. And whatever happened in those practices led them to science. I had mentioned that a bit earlier. Uh, some were very spontaneous. Uh, there was uh, uh, Dr. William Bushell, a medical anthropologist. He was studying the spiritual and um, special capacities that human beings have around the world. But in his own mind and psyche, he didn't believe any of it. He was just wanting to document it. He had never had any spiritual experiences. He was doing his thing. And then one day he had one of these kundalini awakenings, a dakini, appeared, a goddess appeared before him. He you know, merged with something beyond himself. And, and that was the end of the life he knew prior to that. And that put him on a path. Is it safe and, to say that some had uh, experiences what we would call the transcendent aspect of the divine that is, you know, beyond attributes, no content, non-dual sort of oneness experience, and some had uh, the experiences that we would call spiritual, but but involve objects of experience like yes. visions and auditory. Yes, those categories are included. For example, the former where someone just transcended their normal reality and were, it was very um, transpersonal, non-personal, non-dual. 
this person had those experiences when they were rather young. And that led them to become a psychiatrist and a scientist together. And the psychiatry came in because this person had a lot of trouble living life, going in and out of this state. People thought he was crazy. He would end up in you know, a med medical institution and so forth. And uh, they put on drugs, trying to pull him back to the reality we know. It was very hard, but he made his way through it and then got into medicine, psychiatry, and science. And now in his, in his clinical work, he treats people who have so-called psychoses. And he helps them through it. And all the while, he knows the reality of their existence because he knows his existence. He's treating them medically as best as he can, but also in his consciousness and as an approach to them, he, he, he's trying to help them balance that, that say, double-edged sword. Not to suppress what's trying to awaken in them, if that's what's going on, but also to treat them medically, get them grounded and back to an integrated reality. It's beautiful work. Yeah, um, I'm very curious about that. Um, I got the impression from the book that um, most of the scientists, if not all the ones you interviewed, uh, their lives changed in concrete ways as a result of spiritual experiences. Um, I'm guessing many of them took up regular spiritual practices, maybe affiliated with some uh, teachers, mentors, organizations, and, and others re remain independent in their search. Um, yeah. How would how would they change? What are the, did you see patterns? Mm. Well, for example, one of the scientists that just came to mind. He told me at some point in his life he had a transpersonal experience where he merged with the universe, and as you might imagine, it was characterized by a less sense of peace. And expansiveness. Now, did that stay with him in, a, in an uh, outward way? No. But moving forward in his life, that was always there inside him in his consciousness. He knows that's the reality of existence, and he has that as a background moving through space and time of his life, and it helps him manage and cope with things. Yes, he did pick up a meditation practice to help perhaps cultivate more of that uh, emerging in the future. And uh, some people it did influence their scientific work. Uh, depends on the institution. Some institutions, you can't really pursue this very well. You'd have to go to a place like Institute of Nordic Sciences, which some scientists have. Even when I was at UC San Diego, I got a grant uh, with a foundation to study mediumship. And I conducted that study in collaboration with some people at the Institute of Nordic Sciences. So I, I was having this kind of dual life at UC San Diego. I'm doing my whatever cardiac rehabilitation research, psychoneurology, and then we were studying mediums in the lab at IONS. If um, the, it's hard to escape the subject of consciousness in when we talk about such things, and. Um, from every you know, all the people in academia and science I've spoken to over the years, uh, there's resistance to even contemplate the nature of consciousness on on the side of many scientists that it's it's just not what we do. On the other hand, there are many people investigating what is the nature of consciousness and 
where does consciousness come from? Does, is consciousness just a, an artifact of brain activity or is it something more fundamental? Um, the people you've interviewed, did it change their uh, appreciation of or their understanding of the nature of consciousness and where uh, two parts that and where do we stand now in the scientific world vis-a-vis -vis consciousness as a legitimate area of investigation mm -hmm. okay so for the first part yes it did change uh, the lives of many who had those experiences and the change they realized was that this is not an inanimate universe. It's not a material-only universe. It's a living, conscious universe where consciousness is really the fabric of everything, part of consciousness appearing as a material world, but still consciousness itself. And I am intimately part of that and it in its very nature. And people did have those realizations and they carry that. As far as the consciousness studies, yeah, that's that's moved, been moving forward. Again, really, I would attribute that to meditation research. That's been a way for people who uh, have interest in studying consciousness. They can get away with doing it in the context of meditation research, and which is a little bit more validated, as you were saying. If you go on PubMed now, there's probably over 8,000 scientific publications on meditation, going back to when Keith started his, Keith Wallace started his original paper. So there's a lot going on. And that's been a good doorway to do it. And, and that uh, people can uh, frame that as a uh, mental health or uh, mm -hmm. a uh, health intervention. Mm -hmm. uh, so it therefore would attract funding and all that. But, but it doesn't necessarily mean it would change their view of what consciousness is. You know, the only thing that changes people's view of consciousness is having their own awakening around it. And then that's the end of that discussion. They know the reality, and then it's up to them to do with what they want. If they want to use their science to investigate it or just have that as a different part of their existence and not their science. I've seen both. Both trajectories happen. Depends on what kind of position they're in and funding and all that. All right, let me ask you, as one of the scientists um, we're talking about, um, how do you understand what consciousness is and how it relates to the brain? Hmm. Consciousness is everything. From my own perception and experience, all there is is consciousness. And everything that appears in the material world is a manifestation, a reflection of that consciousness, including the brain. The brain is a tool uh, to, say, focus the experience of consciousness, give it a different flavor, a different lens, depending on the person. But essentially, it's consciousness itself manifesting this world that we all exist in. And that's my, my experience, my perception. Do you think that that can be proved? Or will <laughs> one day be proved? Can it be even tested? Yeah, there's the rub. <laughs> <laughs> and that's why I get back to this idea if we can just loosen up 
some of these boundaries with the science and scientific research and start funneling more resources, maybe the answer one day will be yes to that. And that's why all this hinges really just on the scientists themselves having an awakening. They then have the orientation of what's up and they can move forward with the research or not. But I hope there will be movement in that as far as discoveries to measure it. Maybe people in physics, and I don't follow physics very deeply, perhaps feel they've already proven the existence of consciousness. I don't know. Deepak's talked about, Deepak Chopra's talked about this a lot because he has a deep understanding of the consciousness side of things and he's educated himself on all these levels of physics and he's he's put it together as well as others. They're a minority, Paul. <laughs> um, yeah. If, uh, if someone were to say to you, but Paul, you're saying that consciousness is something. It exists uh, independent of the brain activity. But if I probe a living being's brain, it changes consciousness. So therefore, doesn't that prove that consciousness depends on brain activity? How do you respond to that? I would say, it, it shows a correlation between if parts of the brain are activated, how that person is experiencing consciousness. But it doesn't mean it's the origin of consciousness. There's so many experiences of people who have been brain dead. You know these stories, near-death experiences, on and on and on. Eben Alexander wrote a book about this. He wrote a spotlight for my book, too. I asked him to write a piece about how do you help young people who are having awakenings and they want to start moving into a different direction of their life, which is what happened to him. So he also wrote a great piece for the book. Um, it gets back to, yeah, a person just has to have these experiences themselves. And then there's more of a, a gnosis with a G, knowledge, and then they can set about moving forward in their life with that. Last question. If you were suddenly the dictator or the uh, the uh, the head of the uh, NIH, say. Okay, I thought and, you were going to make me dictator of the world, but NIH is good now. We don't go. We won't go that far. <laughs> I just you have a huge budget that you have discretion with, and you can fund any research you want. Where would you? funnel those resources? What would you, what is, what studies would you like to see take place? Yep. Yep. I would create, I had that position. I would create an RFA, which is a research funding announcement. That's what NIH puts these things together. And they're sculpted for specific areas of research. And I would put several hundred million dollars in the pot and I would distribute the RFA and have scientists who have the best ideas, the best minds, the best equipment, put together proposals and be very competitive. What would I like to see? I would like to see research that helped validate really the, the, the transcendent nature of the human being. That would be that would be the primary. For me, the metaphysical or let's say the mystical is very interesting. That's been a, a, a big part of my life since I was a kid, just these mystical experiences as they're called coming my way and showing me things and learning. But, but before that, let's just say, focus on the transpersonal, the non-dual, because the non-dual is essentially conditions of oneness, non-separation, 
when people are in that state and we can help validate its existence and maybe come up with more methods to help generate more people moving into these states, that, from my point of view, would have a beneficial effect on the state of society. Less judgment, a movement potentially towards more peace after all. When you, you know, I am that, thou art that, all this is that. When you come from that place, it's hard to do the kind of wrong things against other people and against the environment that we, we often see. I do have one more question. Maybe the book hasn't been out long enough for you to have an answer to this yet, but I'm curious how uh, your fellow scientists respond to the book and the stories in the book. Has, has there been enough time for that? I think so. Uh, if, if people look on the Amazon website, there's lots of endorsements on there, including one from you. Thank you. And uh, and many scientists have provided endorsements. I've also been getting emails from people just out of the blue whom I don't know, who are thanking me for writing the book. Gosh, I've been living in the closet, so to speak, my spiritual life, and I'm going to try to let it out and begin to integrate it more with my academic work, whether it's my teaching or my research, if I can find ways to do research in this area. I had some people who had spent time in uh, monasteries who then became scientists who had spiritual kind of mystical experiences that either I shared in the book or some of the scientists I interviewed. And they were very grateful. They uh, said they, they just were moved to tears at several parts of the book because it just resonated with things that they had, but it also gave them some kind of validation yeah. that what they had experienced on their journey was real and transformative and, and that's kind of feedback I've been getting, and that's very rewarding for me. Maybe someday there'll be the equivalent of pride parades. <laughs> Scientists right. yeah. had spiritual experience. I love it. I'll have to come up with some kind of flag for that. <laughs> the flag. The, it won't be as entertaining, I'm sure. But <laughs> anyway, Paul, thanks for doing this book. I think it's an important one. Everybody... Here's, here it is again, science, being, and becoming. You see, whoops, uh, the spiritual lives of scientists. There's more of them than you think. Indeed. Thank you, Paul. Good luck with it. Thank you, Phil. Thanks so much for your very thoughtful questions. I appreciated them. We'll be in touch. Take care.